where all my children are the light Born in the sinning, but steady striving to do right My people are warriors, all we know is to fight Pray, they see God in everything I write yeah. Hello everyone! Hi! How are you doing? Alright, well, some of us aren't used to call and respond to church How are y'all doing? Very good. Well, it is a pleasure to be here on the campus of Claflin University in South Carolina, the great state of South Carolina. It's always great to be here, and I just am so appreciative of the hospitality. Thank you, Madam President, for that welcome. Um, it's just a joy to be here, and I thank you all for carving out time in your day for such an important conversation. You know, primary season is upon us. We have registered voters in the audience. All right. I see some hands that didn't go up, so let's make sure we get registered. Um, if you're old enough and eligible. Today we are having a special um, edition of my podcast, which is On One with Angela Rye. Today our guest is someone that most of you all are familiar with. I'm assuming that is why you're here. Um, he is a political phenom. It is none other than Mayor Pete Buttigieg, who is a Democratic candidate in this 2020 presidential election. Let's give him a round of applause. Okay, I'm putting this mic down. Uh oh, you got some fans in here, Mayor Pete. Thank you so much. Um, I'm going to put this mic down. We're going to use podcast mics, okay? So making sure for sound purposes. Here we go. All right. All right. Um, okay, so Mayor Pete, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. Um, one of the things I love to do with my podcast is just a good icebreaker. We, are you scared? You already got, did you guys see that little hand like, uh-oh. Um, it is something we call rapid round. Mm. And so um, I know that you are a former McKinsey consultant, mm -hmm. which means you are very deliberate. Mm. You don't have much deliberative time. It is a rapid round. Okay. So let's start here. Uh, the first one is Pete's Pet Peeve. What is it? Ooh. Um... Grammar, bad grammar, <laughs> emails. I relate, I relate, I relate. Okay, next one. Last song you listened to? Whew. Um, this is Tino Sigaros, the like Icelandic kind of techno band. They have these like sleep tracks. I don't know if anybody's yeah, heard this. Yeah, I listen to spa you know music in my about? sleep. So, uh, all right. it's, is it's, that close enough? It's basically that, but from Iceland. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, I was listening to that on a plane while I was just kind of zoning. You might out. need to send me that link. I might need that. I'm tired this week. <laughs> I'm tired this week. That's good. Um, how about your favorite black American in history? In all of history. Um, Who sucked their teeth in my question? I heard you. Come we'll out. go Frederick Douglass. Frederick Douglass. Yeah. Okay. You have a plan named after him. That's that right. makes sense. Uh, NFL or nah? NFL. Okay. Uh, but I'm from South Bend. We, oh, we, we, we do college on. ball. We don't care you, about pro you ball. Cannot, you cannot. You just have to answer. No bonus. All right. All right, all right. I'll <laughs> we, we'll come back to it if you feel all like right. you need to explain. Uh, your most coveted endorsement in this race is, is who? Ooh. Um, hmm. These aren't. These, these are like, I got to stop and think about these kinds <laughs> of questions. I knew you were going to try that. It's that, it's yeah. that consultant. The Pope. Side. I want the endorsement of the Pope. The Pope. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And then um, last time you cried. Ooh. Um, I love that all these questions says, ooh. Last time This Is Us was on? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Who shot Ghost? <laughs> I got nothing. You got nothing? <laughs> My interns gave me that one. I got nothing either, Mary Pete. Don't worry about it. Um, all right. What about this? Favorite rapper? Mm, I've been... I don't have a favorite favorite. Uh, I think Chance is the one that I'm Aww. listening to the most. That's a good one. The, the, the room likes Ooh, that. That's, God, that sounded kind of controversial. It did? Yeah. I, I thought I, maybe I'm biased because I heard all goodness from that, but you know, whatever. For those of y'all that don't like Chance, we worried about you. Last time you cussed? Oh, probably an hour ago. <laughs> <laughs> okay, what'd you say? Well, we're on, we're being broadcast here. I got to behave. I'm, I'm running checking. for president. I'm just, I'm just, well, presidents, presidents apparently really like even cuss on Twitter these days. Yeah, well, <laughs> you I wouldn't say that's the standard we're aspiring to right now. I agree. I agree. I hear you. Um, what about 
Do you know the Black Family Reunion theme song? Ooh. Oh. <laughs> oh. I don't. If I heard it, maybe I'd recognize it. Let's see. Let me see if I have any help in this room. Like preachers say, do I? Can I get some help in here? What is it, y'all? No. Did somebody just say happy birthday? No. Oh. She was saying before I let go. Okay, sing it. Just hit one part. That's how y'all got. So anyway, y'all play it for them after this on the way to Mox Corner. Okay. But it is, y'all got it, before I let go. And then what about hip-hop or R&B? Mm, hip-hop. Okay. Um, age of your first heartbreak? Ooh. Um, these are not rapid-fire They're questions. not? No. no. They're not? Um, no. No. <laughs> um, this is my last one. This is the one I'm most fascinated with. Uh oh You speak eight languages. Depending how you count, yeah. Eight languages, y'all. Counting English, but that's still a lot. Y'all got seven? I don't have seven. Eight languages. Can you say what's good in each of these? I'm oh. gonna name No, don't do it yet. I'm gonna name them in order. Oh, all right. Okay. French. Uh qu'est-ce qu'il y a de bon? Maltese. Um Chalois. Norwegian. Um Kvargut. Uh, Arabic. Um uh, Dari. Uh, Spanish. Que bueno. Italian. Um, que bueno? Maybe que bueno, right? For good Some measure, Italian. just do it your best was good in English. All right. Was good. All right. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. So, Mayor Pete, you just had, we're past rapid round. I think that you aced the place. Um, you just celebrated a birthday. Mm. Um, yes, you all should give it up. You just celebrated a Thank birthday. You. <laughs> it's a tough crowd. Can we get a birthday wish in there? Okay. So speaking of um, a birthday wish, what is your birthday wish for this year? Uh, my birthday wish is that I will become the president of the United States. Give me one more. <laughs> uh, I want to have the right kind of, I want to feel like built for the summer. I want to get swole. Okay. Yeah. Me too. Let's hold each other to that. All right. Okay. Good. I've been running, but I haven't been lifting. I gotta. I gotta change that. Okay. Um, and I read somewhere uh, that in addition to you being named after some pretty important folks in the Bible, mm. both Peter and Paul, mm -hmm. um, Judge means Lord of the Poultry. Right. That is so fascinating to me. Um, my last name is Rye, and the only two things in the food space or alcohol space that I got is bread and whiskey. I would much rather the, the poultry, the chicken. I don't know. If you had to either give up chicken or give up whiskey, I mean, I would, I could live without chicken. I don't like whiskey. Really? I don't like whiskey you or rye bread. That's had kind of the my right point. whiskey. That's all. Mm -mm. Okay. Well, let's just move on. Let's move on. So there's, um, I was reading um, a quote, there's um, Seneca's Moral Letters, mm. and it says, I will keep constant watch over myself and most usefully will put each day up for review, for this is what makes us evil, that none of us looks back upon our own lives. We reflect upon only that which we are about to do, and yet our plans for the future descend from the past. Very good. So with that, when you look back over your tenure as mayor, what's the one thing you'd most like to change? Oh, so many things. You know, it's funny you mentioned that. I got Seneca in my bag right now. Oh, look at that. Uh, I got spot music coming from you and everything today. And, you know, the things that being mayor, I guess being in any job, but definitely being mm -hmm. in mayor, you learn a lot the hard way. Yeah. And I resisted for a long time how much of the job was about uh, things you can't put into numbers stories and symbols uh, and ways of showing regard for other people that just weren't on my mind when I came in. Not because I didn't care about that stuff, but uh, I was out to do the things that I could measure progress on. And I'm proud of the things that we can measure progress on. But it took work for me to understand how much was behind or beneath the surface of all of the situations I encountered. Mm -hmm whether we were dealing with the way the city felt about itself after our economy went through its ups and downs or 
the pain that was beneath the relationship between the police department and the community. Yeah. Uh, where I wish that I knew in my first year the things that I knew in my eighth year. Wow. Um, and so what of those experiences uh, would you take with you? Would you focus more on symbolic shifts and changes um, as a president? Um, would you try to balance the things that you can, where you're putting points on the board with those symbols? What are the things that you think you would shift as a result? Yeah. First of all, before you count, you got to ask whether you're counting the right things. Wow. So we're yeah. going through this right now, I think, with the economy. President says, we got a great economy. Look at the Dow Jones, right? Look at the GDP. And the more you look at it, the more you got to question whether we're measuring the right things. Right now, the Dow Jones and the GDP are going up. And life expectancy in this country is going down at the same time. That shouldn't even be possible. Mm -hmm. And it shows you that we're measuring the wrong things. I want to look at life expectancy. I want to look at disparities in income and in wealth. I'm going to measure our economy by the the income growth of the 90%. Mm -hmm. In other words, if, if the economy as a whole is going through the roof and it isn't getting to the 90%, it doesn't count. So even when we're measuring, I want to think about what we're measuring, but it's also got to go beyond what you can measure. Look at the climate of exclusion that is being, uh, uh, that, that is emanating from the White House right now. A lot of it is in the, th I'm obviously there's some very specific, very terrible decisions they're making, but a lot of it is in the the tone, the message. I don't think we understood until now just how much we rely on what the president doesn't do, what the president doesn't say, what the president doesn't tweet. And that's just as important as all of the wrongdoing that's coming out of this White House. Mm -hmm. And so I'll be very attentive to the ways in which just the culture and the climate and the tone of the White House can help build out a sense of belonging, backed up by all the policies we're actually going to do. So that's interesting because even when you think about tone, there's some things that he says that I think most of us, to the point of not uh, saying your last cuss word, um, <laughs> based on what he says on Twitter, but it's not just about tone. Like he's unraveled a lot of President Obama's accomplices because of mm -hmm. who he was. You know, tone be damned, since you won't say your last word, I'll say mine. And then the other one, the other thing that I think is so important right now is the fact that he's now... Um, successfully nominated and they're appointed 187 mm -hmm. federal judges with lifelong appointments. That's mm -hmm. not tone, right. right? So how do you ensure that in a along with whatever feels good that we're saying so that we get back to the feeling of unity, there actually is equity yeah. that's on par with the unity that we once felt, right? Yeah. Well, the tone's got to be backed up with action, yeah. right? So like the judiciary, like you're saying, personnel is policy. Yeah. So the people who are appointed, that's good. We're going to be living with that for a lifetime. Mm -hmm. So if we're talking specifically about the judiciary, it means making sure the next wave of appointees, first of all, understand freedom yeah. to include things like reproductive freedom, understand democracy to include things like voting rights that they're drawn from a more diverse background, racially diverse, of course, also professionally diverse. The ratio of people with backgrounds as prosecutors to people yeah. with backgrounds as defenders who find their way onto the bench is concerning. They should have different educational backgrounds. I don't want to betray my alma mater, but it can't be that so many of our best legal minds are all coming from a couple of mm -hmm. Ivy League schools. Mm -hmm. We've got to broaden that out. I'm sure Claflin agrees with that. Absolutely. And <laughs> I've got to think there's some folks here who are destined for the bench. Yeah. we got to be intentional about making sure that happens. And when we do, this will be a better country. Yeah. All right. <laughs> call and response. Now I see y'all know how to call and respond. All in the middle of my podcast. <laughs> but we see you. Um so speaking of seeing people, impeachment, mm. Mm. Um, I don't know about that transition, but impeachment nonetheless. <laughs> Very smooth. <laughs> I even have it on an orange card. Um, Y'all will catch that tomorrow. Do you believe um, at this point that Donald Trump should be rem removed from office? Yes, no question. Um, Do you think at all, um, when you reflect on the actual impeachment process in the House, did the Democrats wait too long to impeach Donald Trump? It's tough to say because yeah. the Senate 
well, the Senate Republicans, have sent a message that no matter what comes to them and no matter when it comes to them, it's a foregone conclusion. And I think it, that message is designed to be disempowering to any effort yeah. to deliver any kind of accountability. So I, I trust Speaker Pelosi to figure out the strategy from a, a House of Representatives perspective that makes the most sense. But what I know is that it's playing out in a way that I think is almost designed to make us feel exhausted. Yeah. And when you feel exhausted, <laughs> yeah. your, your hope fades away, right? And, and the thing I'm always trying to remind voters of is that this is 2020. This is the moment when we can respond to that sense of exhaustion mm -hmm. with action, that no matter what happens on the floor of the Senate, this is the year it's actually up to us. And of course, as somebody who's not a senator, but I'm in the presidential campaign process, my part of all of this is to make sure that we get a new and different and better president. Uh, and that's something that we get to do. I don't mean to sound naive in my optimism, but I also think you can only act when you're propelled by a sense of hope. And my sense of hope is that we can meet that, that just black hole of accountability that the Senate has become and meet it, by the way, not only with a different election for president, but right here in South Carolina, there is an election for Senate going on Yeah, where Jamie, Harrison, Jamie Harrison winning the Senate would send a powerful message yeah. that I think, I mean, that's the kind of message that would be powerful enough to reunite some of the Senate Republicans with their conscience. Mm -hmm. uh, nothing but the loss of power, I think, will that's do that at this point. And those are the things I think about when I watch this process play out on the Senate floor. It's a trip that you that you talk about loss of power, because I think that is exactly what has gotten us to this point in terms of, you know, lack of unity and discord. And again, going back to tone, people are terrified about the fact that they see their power waning. Mm -hmm. Right. And, um, you know, far be it from them to have to share power with. Uh, a, a group of people or some folks who helped to build this country, which I talk about all the time for free. Right. Um, and I think on that point, um, you have been uh, very clear about your support for HR 40, mm -hmm. um, which is a, 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 a bill designed to study um, reparations and reparation proposals. But you've also said that um, people should stop looking at it for a check and more about um, ways to balance justice, to ensure justice in the future. I wonder um, if you can also see the opposite, which is um, equity proposals that do ensure that dollars go into communities. Um, so yeah, just first on that, yeah. like what, in addition to HR 40, yeah. um, would you sign a reparations bill that isn't just studying um, reparations and um, puts forth ideas for reparations plans, but yeah. actually has equity included in dollars in the community. Yeah, I don't think we have to wait for a commission to come back through That's HR right. 40 to take steps that are reparative. Mm -hmm. And yes, that means resources, that means dollars. And the, the way I often explain the perspective that I have on this is that if you think about, if you think about saving a dollar in a bank account, 5%, you save a dollar, and over the years, it becomes $2. And then it becomes $4. At 5%, if you put a dollar in the bank account over 150 years, your descendants would have $1,000 off of that $1 by the miracle of compound interest. Now, if that kind of growth in value applies to the value of a dollar saved, that applies to the value of a dollar stolen. Which means that when we are talking about the generational dispossession of black Americans going back to 1619, the fact that some of these harms came about a long time or were initiated a long time ago doesn't make it better. Right. It makes it worse. If $1 stolen from someone 150 years ago deprives their descendants of $1,000 now, what does the entire life, wealth, and work of a human being amount to now. And of course, this isn't just about some distant historical question. This is directly connected to the dispossession that goes on today, yeah. compounded not only by the effects of slavery, which ended two and only two lifetimes ago, but policy decisions made within living memory, whether we're talking about, uh, well, let's talk about the FDR era uh, policies around housing actually took neighborhoods that were less segregated in the first half of the 20th century, made them more segregated 
by the second half of the 20th century. Yeah. And so if the federal government, in other words, the U.S. taxpayer, funded these harms, then we have to fund a way to mend what is broken. This is not doing somebody a favor. This is about fixing a harm. What does that actually look like? Well, that's why a lot of the things that are in the Frederick Douglass plan we put yeah. forward to deal with systemic racism have specific investments attached to them. Let, Mayor Pete, if we can talk about one of those, you have in your plan a 21st Century Homestead Act. Mm -hmm. um, and it's an important part of your Douglas plan, but we know the Homestead Act of 1862 gave access to land to 1.6 million white Americans. Right. And on the other hand, it only gave land to 6,000 black Americans. Exactly. In part just because of the time. Folks weren't even free yet in right. 1862. And it was taking it away from Native Americans. That's right. That's right. Which is, yes, thank you. For, that's another key harm, which also needs to be made right because reservations weren't right. the solution. So how do you ensure that the 21st Century Homestead Act takes that into account and finally ensures equitable policy for black folks and indigenous people. Yeah, and, and we thought, I swallowed hard before naming the future policy after the past one, but mm -hmm. I thought it was important to talk about the difference between what a 21st century Homestead yeah. Act looks like and what was done in the past. And so the idea here is we're talking about giving outright title to individuals and families, especially when they have been redlined into certain neighborhoods. Mm -hmm only to face the likelihood of being gentrified right back out of them as they become desirable and uh, valuable on the general market. And so what it does is it allows communities to deed properties to people and with a forgivable loan, lets them capture the value of the increase of what that property is worth on the market. Mm -hmm. And so it's a way to build wealth knowing, you know, when we talk about wealth and inheritance, a lot of times people picture vast fortunes going among very wealthy people. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the racial wealth gap in America has to do with comparatively modest sums of wealth mm -hmm. passed down among white folks in the form of things like home ownership. Most, right. most wealth is inherited. And home ownership is one of the biggest pieces of that, but it's also at its lowest level among black homeowners, I believe, since, uh, since we got started with the Fair Housing Act. Yeah. So it's another example of where there has to be intention and there have to be resources, precisely because intention and resources went into creating the harm. Mm -hmm. We're talking about uh, contributors to the wealth gap. One of those we know um, is uh, college affordability. And so just for a moment, I know that you've talked um, openly about the student loan debt um, that you and your husband share, which is around $130,000. And I talked about my number. I say, what's your number? Um, on my BT special, we had a special mm. called Young, Gifted, and Broke. And mine is a little over $60,000. Mm. So we are a part of the 45 million Americans who are carrying more than $1.6 trillion in student loan debt. Um, my question is, do you support uh, Congresswoman Ilhan Omar's um, bill that would call for student debt cancellation? And of course, uh, someone who you supported a great deal when you were 18, Senator Sanders, um, in introduced the companion bill in the Senate. Where do you stand on this? So I support forms of debt relief, but not that one. And, and I'll tell you why. I'm worried about the fairness of saying that if, if you were lucky enough to have your student debt at a certain moment, you get it waved away. But if you run it up afterwards or if you just paid it off, too bad. And I think the right way to do this is to make sure that everybody can get their loans forgiven in cert by taking certain steps. Mm -hmm. uh, like, for example, public service loan forgiveness. So we got a public service loan forgiveness program now. But it's almost impossible to actually take advantage of. Something like 99% of the people who try to use it don't get any benefit. Mm -hmm. We could fix that. And we could widen the definition of what public service is for those purposes so that the program is more generous and more user-friendly. But I think there's a very real choice about how we spend every dollar we put toward education. And I want to make sure that the area where we're making the biggest difference is in support for the folks where we know uh, there will be the greatest need. It's why on the front end, I'm proposing that we make public college tuition free for the first 80% or so of students. Mm -hmm. But folks, and then there's kind of a sliding scale. If you're in that top 10%, I, I still wish people well. I just need them to pay their own tuition. Because I'd rather be taking those dollars and using them for some of these 
other things that we're talking about. And if we're talking about outright loan forgiveness, I would focus that on these for-profit institutions, so-called colleges, that They're the Obama awesome. administration was enforcing against. Yeah. And under Betsy DeVos, that's been dropped. And they have effectively turned the Department of Education and therefore the American taxpayer into a predatory lender. Yeah. That's where I would start the, the loan relief well, rather than promising right. a kind of blanket. president is a predator. So, the, of course, um. the Department of Education <laughs> would be predatory. When you, when you consider your, um, your American opportunity agenda, you know, against what Ilhan and Bernie Sanders uh, um, are proposing, what, how do we radically shift us selfishly, Mayor mm. Pete, as, us out of that debt um, if we're continuing to, continuing to do kind of more of the same? Like, I thought it was admirable when they expanded um, the public service piece, too, mm. but I was fresh off the hill seven years later, so mm. I didn't qualify because you need to be there 10 years. Right. And that's one of the things I want to change, okay. right? So uh, I think sometimes we're being offered a false choice. Either you got to go all the way to the edge yeah. or it's more of the same. Mm-hmm. And what I'm saying is we could do some game-changing things, but it should still be targeted mm-hmm. because also as a matter of generational justice, I think we actually ought to make sure everything's paid for. And we can if we're willing to raise revenue from you know corporations paying zero on multi-billion dollar profit halls uh, and individuals at the top of the income spectrum. But I do think we need to be balanced about this. So what's going to change the game? That's why I'm talking about making public college uh, tuition-free for most folks. And by the way, since as we know, Public colleges are not the only ones that matter. We're sitting uh, on a private exactly. campus right, right now. That's why we got to have dedicated funding for HBCUs as a whole. It's why we got to expand Pell. It's got why we got to pay attention to completion, right? The worst, to be honest, the situation that Chaston and I are in, for example, mm-hmm. financially, ultimately it's pressure, but we'll be okay. The worst situation you can be in is debt, but no degree. And it's why we got to make sure that the obstacles to completion, especially for first-generation college students, are being met through more generous Pell, support for the cost of living and transportation, uh, and active support to make sure that folks who start actually get to finish and get that degree. If you got the degree, that's the best indicator that you're going to succeed. Now, we also know that black folks with a college degree are still at a disadvantage income-wise compared to white folks without one. So it's not like that's enough. But as far as the education piece, that's where I'm focusing the resources. And you you talked about um, also in your plan, um, $25 billion um, in funding for HBCUs, mm-hmm. but there's a, a pot of funding that is shared with HBCUs and other minority serving institutions, mm-hmm. right? So that $25 billion pot is for that group um, together. And I think we're at 50 in our most recent. I'd, oh, 50. Uh, we adjusted what we could do on Fact the tax check, side and gave it. us some more room. Okay. There was an earlier draft that had 25. So, so of the 50, yeah. um, how much funding do you think should be set aside specifically for the needs of HBCUs and HBCU students? So I expect certainly the majority of that is going to HBCUs. Got it. Um, and I've kept it a little bit broad on purpose mm-hmm. in terms of where it can go, but let me mention a couple things yeah. that I think are especially important. One of them is infrastructure, uh, just looking at the physical infrastructure of HBCU campuses. Mm-hmm. Uh, another one is the kind of federal uh, funding and, and federal uh, research uh, that should be happening more on HBCU campuses. Uh, and a, a third and a, a particularly important one is I want to focus on the professions where we have the greatest underrepresentation of black professionals. Because, of course, HBCUs are generating that next generation of black professionals. And so many of the other things we're trying to target get better if we fix that, right? The judiciary gets better if we have more leading black jurists and attorneys. The maternal mortality gap and every other health gap, racial health gap that we know of, gets better if we have more clinicians, doctors, nurses, and practitioners who are black and are less likely to, for example, discount a black patient's description of being in pain. Uh, Law enforcement gets better if more of the folks in that career, and we have struggled with this mightily in my own city, uh, are black and have graduated from HBCUs with a background, uh, not just uh, that prepares them for a job, but but with an understanding uh, of what's at stake in those jobs. And so my point is this is not just about doing right by HBCUs. This is about making sure we've cultivated that next generation of leaders and professionals who in turn can help us do a better job as a country on all of the areas where we have those those gaps and those deficiencies. 
And you just uh, mentioned healthcare is another key issue um, surrounding wealth challenges and even the cost of it. Um, I know you don't support Medicare for all, but why is your healthcare plan um, the the best for Claflin students yeah. and other supporters in South Carolina? So here's the idea. I, I call my plan Medicare for all who want it. And the idea is we, we take a version of Medicare. It's a public plan and you can get in on it if you want to, but I trust you to decide whether you want it. Because I'm meeting some folks, this happens in particular with union members who have negotiated hard to get a certain plan. And sometimes they gave up wages in order to get the best plan. And they don't want anybody in Washington telling them, you got to give that up and come over to ours. Now, I actually believe the public plan I propose to create will be the best one for everybody. If I'm right, everybody will choose it. But if I'm wrong, for some people, and they would be better off on some other plan, we're going to be really glad we didn't kick them off of it. So the idea of Medicare for all who want it is we, we put a little humility into the policy and let people decide on their own when they're ready to switch. But everybody has access to an excellent plan. Because the point for me is not to make sure that it's the government that's providing your health insurance. The point is to make sure that there's no such thing as an uninsured American. This gets us there. But it's a lower cost and it respects people's freedom a little more than just saying one fine day, we're going to switch it over and you're going to like it. Do you um, think at all that your plan that is Medicare for all who want it, um, there are critics who would say that it is designed to not piss off insurance companies. What do you say to critics who have that as a response? Well, if that was the intent, then we did a really bad job because when I rolled it out, <laughs> it pissed off the insurance companies. Now I swore. Um, maybe maybe so, on the spectrum, it, they weren't as mad as they are with, you know, I don't know. I don't know about the spectrum. They definitely attacked it like the next day because yeah. they don't want the competition, yeah. right? I mean, what I'm saying is uh, that we're going to create a better alternative and it's going to run them out of business un unless they can do a better job than they ever have. Hey, maybe they will. And if they do, good for them. I don't think they will. But if they do, the truth is I don't care. I just want to make sure everybody's covered. So in 2018, January 2018, um, I was getting older. I think I was your age then. I just wanted to sound like <laughs> an older person for one. Um, I turned 40 just this past October. But in 2018, I chose to freeze my eggs. Mm. And it was so expensive. Mm. So one of the questions I have, because you also talked about maternal mortality, um, just everything around fertility, period. Do you yeah. think that egg freezing and IVF for the people who can't afford it, yeah. that it should be covered by their health care? Yes. We, we, we've got to recognize that we're, we're talking about an essential service. We're talking about something people need. Mm -hmm. And uh, making sure that it's possible for everybody. Obviously, my husband and I will face some level of process in order to have kids, yeah. which we hope to do. And we need to support Americans, uh, whatever their circumstances, who want to support families. That's part of what family values means to me is yeah. making it affordable to have a family and, and feed a family and raise a family. Um, what else does family values mean to you? I think that's such a good question. Well, it means keeping families together mm -hmm. for one thing. So when you look at our immigration policy, to me, that flies in the face of family values. Would you support um, appointing a czar who's responsible for um, reuniting families at the border as president? Mm. Yeah, we're definitely going to have to have a very intentional process mm -hmm. about doing that. I mean, I mean literally, the, the government has lost track of people. Exactly. And, and by the way, when we're talking about a pathway to citizenship, I think the families we have harmed in this way need to be in the front of the line. Yeah. And that's what reparations looks like. Truly. It yeah. is a, it mending is what's broken. That's right. right? That's exactly. right. Yeah. Um, um, I didn't mean to interrupt your family values answer, but that is something. No, I've just been thinking about, it, especially in terms of immigration, because I'll tell one of the best things about campaigning all over the country is people surprise you and places surprise you. Mm -hmm. And I was in a rural Iowa, definitely a place where Trump did well. Mm -hmm. I was campaigning there and a girl, she, she's in high school. Um, and raised her hand to ask about family separation at the border, which I thought was interesting because she didn't strike me as somebody who had likely been anywhere near the border. And then she explained why she cared about it. And it was that her father had walked out on their family a few years earlier. And so she knew exactly what a separation of a family looks like. And she was able to find in that pain a way to relate to the circumstance of 
you know, a five-year-old Salvadoran boy at the border in Texas who's got otherwise nothing in common with her, mm -hmm. superficially. Mm -hmm. but, but she sees how in the name of the idea of family, she has something uh, uh, in common with that kid. Mm -hmm. And so I think family values are absolutely at stake in immigration. Uh, they're at stake in the basic questions of how we make sure you can afford to have a family mm -hmm. in America. I mean, just the fact that no one earning minimum wage, there's not one county in the United States of America where someone working full-time at minimum wage can afford a two-bedroom apartment. And when we're marching with fast food workers, in fact, we were in Charleston not long ago, uh, uh, marching with fast food workers fighting for $15 in a union. When I talk to them, they almost always are talking about their kids. They're not saying, I want a higher wage so I can have these nice things. They're saying, I want a higher wage because my kid is counting on me. It's about family mm -hmm. for them. And so, you know, you got folks beating us over the head with a certain interpretation of their idea of their religion and using the word, the phrase family values to describe it. When they the families. It. Yeah. And, and meanwhile, the families that I see are suffering because of a whole bunch of other policies that have gone on that are a choice. Mm -hmm. And if we make a different choice, families in this country will be better off. You, um, you wrote in your memoir about being gay, speaking mm -hmm. of family values and how it's been used against, I think, especially mm -hmm. the Democratic Party, um, and said that you, at the time it, you thought it was a career death sentence. And you also talked about wrestling with um, being known as the gay politician, which I'm sure a lot of people um, who consider running for office can relate to. Um, now, given where you are, what do you say to 20-year-old Pete? Wow. Um, I guess that you're, you're going to be all right. Um, I mean, the thing is, then to the extent I was even prepared to begin to acknowledge this about myself, and by the way, if you're uh, college age and you're out, I really admire you because I was a long way from figuring out uh, or admitting to myself who I was at that time. Mm. Um, but the very thing that I thought might mean that I don't get to make a difference in public mm. service or in the military, it's wound up being part of how I do get to make a difference. I talk about God having a sense of humor, right? No matter what happens in this election, which we're in it to win it, even now, before the first vote has been cast, I know that part of, uh, and this isn't why I got into this. I got into this because I thought I had the right ideas for our country. But part of it has been sending a signal that I wish 20-year-old Pete could have seen mm -hmm. that tells people that, that they're okay and that they get to be themselves. And some of the most touching moments of this campaign is, are, are when I find people who let me know, people from an older generation who say that uh, they never thought they'd see a day like this coming. People from a younger generation who, who say they, they feel like they can be themselves now. Um, I mean, I didn't know one out student in my high school. Zero. Doesn't mean there weren't any queer kids in my high school. It means nobody was out. And, uh, and to be a little part of that changing. Um, and even signaling to other people who are experiencing exclusion in other ways, like a uh, another high school student from Iowa who came up to me recently and uh, over the summer, I saw her recently and, and said that because of my campaign, she felt like she didn't have to be ashamed of herself just because she had autism. Mm. Shows that you're reaching people in ways you don't even understand sometimes. And the 20-year-old me, I don't think could have even begun to grasp mm. that that would be part of uh, what it meant to carry what I would have then thought of as a burden. I love that. Um, you spoke to the young people in here. Yes, you definitely, that's courageous. You definitely should applaud him for that. Uh, you spoke to the young people in the audience who um, were courageous enough to be out now, but what advice would you give to the young people in here? Um, some of them literally maybe in this room who are trying to find the courage to walk in their truth. Well, first of all, you're ready when you're ready. So mm -hmm. not only do you not have to be ashamed of who you are, but 
you also don't have to be ashamed of choosing how and when and whether to share that with anybody else. Um, and I wish the advice I could give was go for it and everything will be fine. The advice I can give is that you will be amazed at who's in your corner mm. and that I'm in your corner and that you will never know who you might be able to affect who's watching you, uh, who, uh, who you might not even notice. Um, that that doesn't make any of it easy. Uh, and, and I'm not here to pretend it will be. Um, but also, we're living in a moment where uh, if we get this right, our time will be remembered as one. I know this sounds like a strange thing to say under the Trump presidency, but if we get it right, our time will be remembered as one where we opened up the possibilities of people living on the wrong side of all kinds of different fences of exclusion to be seen. And if we get that right, which is a huge if, but if we get that right, we could be living through one of the most important, empowering, enlightened times in American history. Uh, we already know what will happen if we get it wrong. So let's focus on the other part. Mm. And in some way, you could be a part of that. Um, I know that right now, uh, there's been a lot of conversation about how you do and how you're performing with black voters. Um, and I spoke to one uh, from Indianapolis that you may know. Uh, his name is Congressman Andre Carson. Mm -hmm. Um, and Congressman Carson had this to say about you. Pete has always been service-minded. He listens. He's empathetic. I remember him as a young intern for then Representative Joe Donnelly, also as a statewide candidate for Indiana State Treasurer. His intellect, humility, and willingness to listen to constituents is reflective of his Hoosier values. He had to throw that in there. <laughs> and Midwestern sensibilities. Um, which I thought was impressive. And so what I would like to know from you is in a state like South Carolina, where right now um, your polling is uh, hovering at around 2%. Um, what are you going to do to ensure that an Andre, Andre Carson quote about you hmm. um, becomes the norm and not the exception? Hmm. Well, the simple fact is I have to earn that. Hmm. And, I think I've been better able to earn it among those who know me best in Indiana. Of course, I have my critics in Indiana too, but I have so much more uh, support, especially among black folks where I'm best known. And it's my job as a candidate to make sure that I earn that in other places. And I think that we've earned a lot of support for ideas like the Douglas plan. But I've also encountered voters, especially voters in the South, especially black voters who have been carrying the party in the South, mm -hmm. who frankly aren't really going to be that taken by what's in my plan if they don't think they know what's in my heart. And I recognize I'm competing against folks who have had years or even decades to demonstrate what's in their heart. Mm -hmm. And here I am, new guy, new white guy. New young white guy new too. New young white guy. Um, who comes along saying, look at my great plans, look at what I'm going to do, to voters who have been taken for granted or felt taken for granted again and again and again, which means that high bar is high for a very good reason. Mm -hmm. And the best I can do is to tell the story of my own community, uh, the good, the bad, and the indifferent, because we've had all of the above, to tell my story. And without pretending to know for a minute what it is like to be followed around a department store because of my race or to consider uh, my hair routine to amount to a, a job-threatening situation. Mm. At least being able to say that I've, I've walked through life in a certain way that motivates me to make myself useful to mm -hmm. others. And then the rest is to do a lot of listening. So part of our approach in South Carolina has been, you know, we do the big, the big uh, uh, rally type mm -hmm. events. And I'll be honest, it's mostly white folks showing up. And so... In South Carolina. Yeah. Does that scare you? Yeah. Because I'm happy for the folks who are showing up. Yeah. But uh, in order, not just to win, in order to deserve to win, 
I got to be speaking to everybody. Again, especially knowing that my party has depended on black voters, black women in particular. If you look at how, for example, the answer changed in Alabama mm. or how we're going to retire Lindsey Graham, right? He's got to um, retire. He's got to retire. That means I got to do something different. Well, and so I've been humbled by that and learned to have. Have you been hurt by it? I don't think it's my place to be hurt by folks not being into who can presume to say that somebody I haven't met ought to be enthusiastic about the idea of making me the leader of the free world, right? You you go out and earn that. Um, Well, let me, let me, let me say why I asked that. The, you're the only candidate I've seen that has a uh, named black agenda, hmm. a Douglas plan. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember being, that was the first thing that I saw from you just candidly where I was like, mm -hmm. okay, I'm impressed. Mm -hmm. And based on what Douglas, Frederick Douglass stood for, mm -hmm. super impressed. I wanted the the podcast to be in Anacostia originally for that reason. <laughs> oh, Seriously. Yeah. Yeah. And um, to me, knowing that I've been that intentional around issues mm -hmm. and you're in, you're in this like low single digits here. Mm -hmm. I'm saying I would be hurt. I'm not trying to project on you, but I am yep. questioning that. Like, okay, what else do you need? Like, yep. and, and so maybe to that question, one thing that I did really want to ask you, and I know we have to open up for questions, is when you consider um, your team who mm -hmm. surrounds you and, and what you would hope to take in the White House. So both on your team in the White House and in your cabinet, who are two black women that come to mind who you're like, they have to be there. They have to not only be a seat, have a seat at the table, but they got to be in my ear. Mm. So I think it'd be a mistake for me to name check anybody without talking to them. Um, it's your wish list. <laughs> it's your wish list. Let me, without presuming to set up a cabinet that, uh, uh, that I haven't earned yet. Although I will say I've also committed that my cabinet will be at least 50% women and will be as diverse as the country we serve. Um, but let me say that there are extraordinary black women who are both known nationally and who are not. I mean, if I just think about, uh, if I just think about my day, uh, uh, you know, I, uh, this morning I had a chance to spend a little time with Dr. Susan Rice, somebody who, uh, as a national security yeah. leader, uh, is exactly the kind of voice that the United States is lucky to have. Um, I was at the uh, uh, U.S. Conference of Mayors uh, this morning, and uh, there are so many mayors uh, leading. Again, some of them won't be household names because when you're a mayor, yeah. everybody around you knows you, and, and you don't always your name doesn't always get out. Um, Our black mayors are kind of famous, though. Like we have a mayor named Keisha, even if we don't live in Atlanta. See, like <laughs> That's so right. there's some there's some safe bets. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, getting to know her and mm -hmm. and, uh, and Latoya Cantrell in yeah. uh, uh, in New Orleans. Um, and uh, uh, across the South, but not only in the South, um, extraordinary black women who are leading communities. Uh, I think uh, uh, all of us who have followed politics these last uh, few years were thrilled to see what Stacey Abrams was able to do and what she's doing right now yeah. to make sure that the kind of voter suppression that helps to explain why she is not the governor of Georgia as she should be. That she didn't take that sitting yeah. down and is now defending democracy for others. And we had the honor of uh, visiting a, a text slash phone bank, calling people who've been purged uh, to let them know about their rights. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, again, I don't want to get anybody in trouble by naming them in a way that would make it sound like Blame they're me. connected You're to fine. this campaign. But what I will say is that uh, it would not only be uh, an injustice, but it would be depriving the country of some of its best leadership if we do not have... Uh, are leading black women voices in positions of, of highest authority in the next administration. That's awesome. I love that you went to mayors too, um, yeah. given, you know, your, your last role. So that is incredible because so often mayor, uh, elected officials at the municipal level are not discussed. So I think that's dope. Anyway, it's time for questions. Um, if you all don't, don't mind for the sake of time, if you can come up here to do we have security reasons why this is barricaded off steven i don't know where you are but i want to make sure how close can they come to right here so i need to come down okay i'm coming down mayor pete you are incredible you're ans answering audience questions now All right. this one i'm gonna don't come this, this way. come this way are there stairs there i'm coming here okay questions for mayor pete 
can there please be um, questions and not speeches? I will be that person because he cannot. He is still earning you all's votes. So questions, please. Yes. And can you state your name and where you're from? Okay. My name is Delane. Oh, okay. Okay. My name is Delane Friars and I'm from Columbia. And my question deals with the impeachment that's going on, the trial. If and probably when the president is not convicted, what do you think? Well, how, how do you think that will, um, what, what will that mean for our nation going forward? Uh, well, it's not good. I mean, part of what it means is that in this Senate, the message went out that you can cheat, you can lie, you can involve foreign nations in our domestic politics, and you can keep your office. Uh, but I think it will still matter that the impeachment happened because at least it sent a message. It'll be recorded through history. Only the third impeachment of an American president ever. Uh, that when you do that, there is some kind of response. This is not a, just about accountability for the president. It's about integrity for the presidency. But the other thing I think is that, again, in the, in the end, it's up to us, right? The Senate gets a verdict on this president, but we all get a verdict on the Senate and the president. And so I'm focused, no matter what happens on the floor of the Senate, on what we can do and how we can respond to that sense of helplessness that I think they want us or need us to feel so that we just switch it off. That's the most dangerous thing that could happen, I think, is if we switch it off. We visited the, uh, uh, the memorial, the lynching memorial in, uh, in Alabama. And one of the inscriptions on the wall there is about how hopelessness is the enemy uh, of justice, because you have to have some level of hope that propels you to seek justice and seek change. And my hope is that if that happens in the Senate, and again, the GOP is giving us every indication that it will, that that just gives us that much more of a fire in our belly to go out there and change things. Thanks. Thank you. Next question. Hello. I'm a I'm a uh, great to meet you again, actually. I came to your town hall back in Columbia on September, actually. Um, anyways, now let me get to my question. Uh, so I have a learning disability since I was in kindergarten. It's getting better now. So what is your plan to make public education more accessible to those with learning disabilities, mm -hmm. especially for those students of color and who are commonly open, overlooked within the public education. Yes. So glad you raised that. And I'm so glad that, that frankly, that, that you're prepared to speak to that publicly. Um, because, really. Well, then it, then it took some courage to be up there. Um, but uh, it's a reminder that, that you ought to be proud of who you are. And, and you ought to be supported by your government. So, you know, there's a bill, the IDEA, Individuals with uh, Disabilities Education Act, that provides resources for schools, for example, for students with any number of disabilities. But it's never been fully funded by the federal government. I'm proposing that we actually finally fund it so that schools are getting the support they need. That's one thing. Another thing that's very important is making sure that we set a goal of supporting students being able to be uh, in classrooms with other students as often as possible. In other words, this tracking of folks. Uh, into a uh, kind of off to the side uh, isn't always benefiting students. Uh, and then you connect that to the experience of students with color. And there is no question that uh, we cannot fully confront things like the school to prison pipeline unless we have a much better handle on how to support students with disabilities. This in turn reflects on how we support our teachers who will tell you when I'm talking to teachers now, I hear about mental health and disability issues as often as I hear about pay because they're being asked to uh, become managers and professionals in, in this field without the resources to do it, which is why we got to back them up, not just with moral support for teaching in general, um, but with better systems at the community level, as well as in terms of health and support and therapy. So my point is it's the whole system, but it, but it begins uh, with the idea that if we do a better job supporting students and professionals with disabilities. That makes you freer to offer more. This isn't just about helping you, frankly. This is about anybody who could benefit from the contributions you're going to go on to make with that education that you're getting. And we as a country will be better off for it. So it's as much about what you have to contribute uh, as it is making sure that we meet your needs. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you.
come up. <clears throat> I'm not calling on people. If you come up here, that'll save time. So maybe form a line and they'll team will cut me off when we're done. What happened? Oh, you're. I'm sorry, honey. <laughs> come on. Hey, I'm Jessica, and I'm with Save the Children Action Network from Columbia. And pretty much my question is that since January 29th will be the one-year anniversary of the MPP, which is pushing back children from um, coming over from Mexico mm, and yes. pushing them into dangerous right. cities, um, what would you commit to repelling that harmful policy in your first day in office? Yes, it will end right away. These, the metering policy, the remain in Mexico policy, anything related to family separation ends right away. There are some things that we will have to put together a legislative package to deal with, to do the full immigration reform. But there are certain principles we need to establish from day one. Uh, and that includes this MPP and anything else that would uh, diminish the safety of people, by the way, many of whom are exercising their legitimate legal rights, like applying for asylum. That's not asking for a favor. That is exercising a right. And we need to respect that. And one more thing from day one. We will act so that there is no such thing as a for-profit detention facility for children. Oh, thank you. What, what, can't, hold on. Where is the... Okay. Thank you. Okay, I'm going to grab this so we can go to the next question, right. okay? Thank you for sharing this. I need a staffer. Sorry, Nina. This is Nina Smith, everybody. This would not have happened if <laughs> Nina Smith did not work her behind off. Shout out to Nina Smith. Grabbing posters, too. Okay, next question. Yes, Mayor Pete, my name is Lyra McCutcheon. I'm a retired yes. United Methodist pastor. My concern is the excitement level of the Democratic candidates. If you are elected as a candidate for the Democratic Party, how do you plan to excite the base and to win over undecided voters? Yes. Uh, and I'm glad you said and instead of making it sound like we got to pick one, because if we have the right message, we will be speaking to our base and we will be speaking to those voters who have been on the fence. And I'm seeing them when I'm campaigning. I'm seeing a lot of folks. I call them the future former Republicans who I'm honest with them. I don't pretend to be more conservative than I am. And they know we won't agree on everything, but they are as disgusted with this president as I am maybe for slightly different reasons, but often for the very same reasons. They might be conservative, but they are sick of looking their kids in the eye and trying to explain 2016 to them. But we've also got to make sure that we are exciting our base. And one thing I can tell you for sure, as somebody who, as I mentioned earlier, is seeking to earn and working uh, the hard way to make sure that I earn support from diverse constituencies, uh, is that I will never take any vote for granted as a general election candidate. One other thing I would point out is that Every time my party's won the Oval Office in the last 50 years, it's usually been, with, it's always been actually a candidate who was new on the scene. I don't know why exactly that is, but it's been a candidate who was offering a new generation of leadership and wasn't viewed as a creature of Washington. And I think now's a good moment to be ready with a message to turn the page that should make as much sense and mean as much in the everyday lives of uh, people who have been with us all along, who we dare not take for granted. And folks we've maybe lost touch with over time, but can pull back into the fold at a time like this. Thank you, Pastor. Barack Obama spoke in this very room well, in 2007. Well, hopefully I can soak up some of that good luck then. You volunteered for him then in <laughs> Iowa too, right, Mayor Pete? That's right. Here Knocked on doors for him. <laughs> Hello. Um, my name is Kiana Eady. I'm a senior middle-level education major. Um, upon graduation, I will more than likely be employed in a public school, mm. um, servicing minority uh, kids in low income communities. So um, my question is, one, what's the plan to like get more funding to those yeah. schools and to increase the salary of teachers nationwide? Yes. Thank you. Great question. Thank you. So first of all, thank you for being ready to be a public school educator. Uh, I married a teacher, so I get an education about education all the time. And teachers are putting so much of themselves into taking care of their students and not getting enough support. It's why we need to make sure teachers are better paid. How do we do it? Well, that's a big part of what Title I is for. And I'm proposing a major increase in Title I because we also want to make sure that we're supporting best the teachers who choose, as you will, to make a difference in the schools where they're the greatest need. Remember, in almost any other country, if there's an area, a district, or a neighborhood where kids have the greatest need, 
there's the most kids in poverty or kids are up against the biggest struggles, they would get more resources per pupil. We're one of the few students where the reverse, uh, one of the few countries where the reverse is true often. Uh, and we can smooth that out through federal funds like Title I. Uh, also, Title II funding could be available specifically for making sure that there are more diverse teachers. Because frankly, there are a lot of kids who being able to see a teacher like you, who looks like them, increases their likelihood of succeeding. And that in turn is, again, another reason why we need to support the HBCUs that are creating that next generation of professionals. And the last thing I'll say, uh, which should go without saying, but, but uh, we can't count on it these days, so I'm just going to say it. My secretary of education will be somebody who believes in public education and backs up our teachers. I'm so sorry. You want to know the good news. I'm going to give you the good news and the bad news, Mayor Pete. The good news is there's still a lot of questions, which means you have to come back and do a town hall. Mm. The bad news is, y'all, that was the last question. Oh, no. So I want to thank you all so much for your time. Please give yourselves a round of applause. Mayor Pete, everyone. Thank you. Make sure you vote in the primary. Register your friends. If you're not registered, please go register. Thank you all so much for your time. Striving to do right, my people are warriors All we know is the fight, praying to seek God And everything I call me the yellow shotter I say I'm just my father's daughter Like Christ, my body beating But I refuse to holler Won't give them the satisfaction But I let the tears flow Steady praying for a father Forgive them, they don't know That the revolution will not be televised Twitter, Facebook, excuse me as I scrutinize Out of the mouth of this babe Comes perfected praise As if he needed a